this is the 22nd episode of the Sports Map Podcast. Thanks for listening in. I'm your host, Nick Kane. Today, we're chatting uh, about the role physios play in the rehabilitation and return to play of a concussed athlete with AFL physiotherapist, Laura Vasari. Laura is currently one of the physiotherapists at the St Kilda Football Club in the AFL, and she also shares her time there with the Epworth Hospital's concussion clinic. Laura has a special interest in the management of concussion, and today we'll chat through a number of factors regarding what is concussion, some of the early medical management, returning to exercise and resistance training for the concussed athlete, screening for vestibular or ocular motor screening tools, the role of the multidisciplinary team, and some of those progressions through return to contact and return the athlete to sport. And just a couple of updates from the sports map before we jump into today's podcast. Uh, if you haven't been across to the website recently and seen our new masterclass platform, I highly recommend you do. Plenty of fantastic content coming there every few weeks. Um, this concept was sort of uh, born out of, I guess, how we as physios saw some of the best way to learn and absorb information. For me in the past, it's been when I've had the opportunity to take an athlete or a patient to, a, to an expert in their field for a second opinion. Uh, and through my work at Essendon Footy Club as a physio, I've been lucky to do this with some of the world's best, including Edna King, Craig Purdom, Jill Cook, Peter Maliaris, Alex Contouris, and I could name a few more. And the information you get from this is second to none. It's, it's, it's clinically relevant. Uh, it's practical insights that you can apply straight away with your patient to get those little wins. And that's what we've tried to curate here with these masterclasses, except obviously the point of difference being that you can watch from your own home, uh, from any device, it's on demand, uh, and you can just work your way through all the different videos there uh, and, and also obtain a certificate for each one for all your CPD record keeping. So there's a seven day free trial going at the moment. Um, so head over there, have a look, delve in and enjoy. Now, some of our recent additions on the Masterclass platform include Josh Heary and Mark Scholes on the painful hip. Laura Fazari, our guest today on concussion, where you can see all the practical assessments and management exercises she would use. It's Peter Maliaris on proximal hamstring tendinopathy. And of course, don't miss the ones that have been there for a couple of weeks now from Craig Purdom, Jill Cook, and Ebony Rio. We have some fantastic ones coming soon from the likes of Andrea Mosler on hip rehabilitation, Alex Contouris on lumbar bone stress injuries, Camel Bowen on hand and wrist, hand and thumb injuries in sport and Hamish McCauley on shoulder rehabilitation. Of course, staying on top of our events, our recently sold out upper limb rehabilitation in sport on the Gold Coast was a big success and we have our groin symposium coming to Sydney in early November. So both of these events were sold out and are sold out yet you can gain some virtual access to that still but that's only for a very limited time a couple more weeks and that will be uh, no longer available to register for so if you are keen to get that virtual access content shoot over the website asap to have a look and the big one for 2023 is we are super excited to be bringing Jordan Meneguccia to Australia for his one-day master sessions in Melbourne and Sydney. It's termed an expert's approach to hamstring injuries and it'd be fair to say that Jordan is one of, if not the leading hamstring expert in the world. So if you're an Australian physio or rehabilitation coach working with athletes who sustain hamstring injuries, it goes without saying that this is a not to miss event. Very limited spots, it's highly practical. So don't waste any time in getting onto that. And there at this stage, there will not be a virtual access, so a live event only. Okay, let's get into this chat with Laura talking concussion. All right, Laura, well, uh, do you, can you let us know a little bit about uh, yourself and what you're doing work-wise now and I guess where your interest in concussion started? Uh, yeah, so I'm working uh, part-time at the Saints, so probably sort of three, three and a half days a week there and then doing two days at the concussion clinic at Epworth, um, which I, I really enjoy the mix of both um being i feel like one influences the other quite a bit as well um and i get you know information from both that or from one that i'll always sort of use at the other as well um 
And my interest in concussion probably came from seeing quite a few of them as St Kilda started in the VFLW initially. And we, given that it was um, reasonably new and we had some players that hadn't actually uh, played much footy at that point, uh, we had quite a few contact-based injuries, including concussion. And um, that's what I think sparked my interest in it. Yep. And was that because you saw some of flaws or I guess room for improvements in the way they were managed? Um, yeah, I was interested in just how it was being managed in general. So I hadn't really done much in the way of uh, neuro or vestibular rehab since leaving uni essentially and since finishing up placements. And um, I was more just interested in, I didn't feel like it was particularly well managed or it had to be externally managed essentially at a, a even at an elite sporting level. So I wanted to be able to just get a handle on how some of that sort of worked and, and learn a bit more about it. Yeah, nice. And uh, I guess the listeners who wouldn't know too much about you other than reading in your bio, what's, fill us in a little bit on, I guess, your pathway to working at the St Kilda Footy Club and, and where you're at now? Uh, yeah, so I have generally done a bit of footy right throughout from um, when I finished it or when I was at uni as well doing the sports trainer sort of stuff but um, started doing just some general rotations at Epworth and then moved uh, across to the UK and did a bit of work there mainly to fund some travel over there Um, so spent a year doing little bits and pieces over there and then none of which is uh, particularly relevant to where I've ended up now. Um, and then came back, did went back to Epworth to do some of their trauma rotations and then found that I wanted to try some private practice work um, and then combine that, uh, doing some private practice stuff with um, some footy work out at Coburg Footy Club. Um, and then went from Coburg in the VFL to doing some AFLW work at Carlton and uh, filled in for a shift at the Saints uh, five years ago and still there now. Beautiful. So certainly a like a, a big exposure to AFL football for those listeners who would be overseas and, um, and, and now you're obviously spending a lot of time in there and in, is concussion something you see very often um, and how often would you be working with a player sort of at St Kilda with concussion? Um, so particularly, uh, so I've, yeah, um, been helping the doctors out with the concussion management over the last couple of years and um, we would have maybe I think we had five individual instances this year um, but all of which uh, have generally missed so we've only really had I think one that actually only uh, missed one game most of them because they tend to either if they happen say midweek at a training session Um, they have to miss an extra game or because of symptoms and essentially needing to be almost symptom free uh, the next day to be able to progress through the AFL protocol. Uh, They have had to miss an extra game or two because of uh, where they fit into um, to that return to play protocol. Uh, So yeah, so it's been probably uh, there's been sort of fits and spurts of it. But generally, there's been someone that's been managed um, throughout most of the year. Yep. And uh, before, I guess, we talk through that and we will sort of talk through that systematically, I guess, uh, a concussion protocol, what is what is the AFL concussion protocol? Um, so the AFL concussion protocol has been um, set up and then more restricted in the last um, two years where they have to actually miss for 12 days. They can't come back to play within that 12-day period. Um, it started off, I think, as seven days uh, where you could get away with sometimes not missing a game if you happen to have an eight or nine day break. Um, and uh, for a variety of reasons, both, I think, legislative and uh, hopefully some pathophysiology in there, they have extended that out um, a bit more now. And uh, we'll probably run through it in how we look at returning to play. But you then have to actually start off um, the, when you start off as being reasonably symptom free, then you can start to progress through uh, the actual protocol, looking at return to bike, return to running, um, and going back into different forms of training 
having to pass certain tests like um, an electronic version of a test on the Cognogram and SCAT tests to be able to then sort of earn your right to progress further into your um, into your contact-based trainings and um, ultimately being cleared to return back into play. All right, well, we might start, uh, let's start chatting through that, but I guess, um, as mentioned in the intro, you've also recently done a masterclass for us on concussion rehabilitation um, where you took us through a number of those assessment tests and also some corrective things. What would viewers sort of take away from that and um, from watching that masterclass? Yeah, so we, um, yeah, did that a little while ago, which was really fun. Um, I, it's really difficult to convey a lot of these uh, different tests and the treatment particularly um, in this sort of podcast type format. So I think it's really important to be able to view it as well. So generally it's looking at, you know, say you're someone that, you know, is a really good musculoskeletal practitioner, but don't have much of a vestibular background. Um, just showing you how to complete a basic vestibular assessment, some introductory exercises just to get people going. And often for, you know, 90% of the cohort of concussions that you'll get, that will often be enough. Um, it's also learning how to pick out that 10% that probably will need some, some extra help there because they can often go on to have some really prolonged symptoms uh, like we've seen um, in the media, you know, whether it's AFL players, NRL players. Uh, so they're the ones that you want to pick up early and so you can actually refer them off. Um, so it's knowing how to pick those um, players up or those just, you know, you can obviously get a car, uh, get a concussion from a car accident or a, a workplace accident as well. So it's being able to, to notice which ones potentially are going to need a little bit more, more help. And I think the... Um, biggest part is is being able to actually convey some really basic education to patients uh, in the early days. So, you know, especially if you're working with them uh, as part of a sub elite or a recreational team, you want to be able to get them, say, that day and go, well, this is what you should and shouldn't do over the next few days so that then hopefully um, you don't actually have to deal with a lot of the repercussions that come with prolonged concussive symptoms. Um, cause that's the, the main part that has been found to actually reduce the symptom burden. Oh, perfect. It was a super informative, uh, session. I think, um, yeah, as you mentioned, the ability to visualize some of those tests and assessments was, uh, well, I was there for it. So one of my biggest learnings, um, I'm sure others will get plenty from it. So I guess to take us through. Yeah, correct. Some of it's just hard to sort of relay, um, just with words. So, uh, yeah, it does, it, it is a bit easier to watch it. All right. Well, um, let's uh, let's talk through, I guess, some of those concussion management protocols and strategies in, a, in I guess, how you would sort of do that. For, and I'll start from the top, which might be a bit of a simplistic answer or question for some. But uh, what is concussion, and and why is it so important that we get this process right? So it's a transient or, or temporary change in some in brain function, uh, which is really important to actually clarify that with the patient. Um, and it's due to a mechanical force or trauma. So sometimes they have been hit, say, in the shoulder, and it's the whiplash component of that that will create a concussion, but often they've had some sort of head-high contact. Um, so there's the two key components are that it's temporary and that it's due to a mechanical force. Um, the main uh, part of a concussion that's difficult, and it's a good thing too sometimes, is that you don't have um, anything that you can use as a marker. You know, there's nothing on a blood test. You don't have any uh, head trauma shown on an MRI or a CT, which is a good thing. Like you should be able to use that to also reassure the patient, um, but it can be frustrating for them. So it is important to get across to them that it is temporary. All right. And I guess through that initial stage around diagnosis is often sort of driven by the doctor somewhat, but for the sake of the podcast, let's say um, an athlete has been diagnosed with concussion. Um, what does that immediate one to three days look like post the injury? Are they, are they lying around resting? Are they getting some movement? Do they come and see a physio and, and when and why would they come and see a physio? 
So in that first couple of days, um, so uh, the difference there would be whether, so if you're seeing them um, say after they've spoken to the team doctor on the sidelines, um, that one to three, that time is actually a really good time to get some education in. So for that first couple of days, they really don't need to be doing much. Um, you wanna try and get them, which is hard to encourage at the moment, but you wanna try and get them off a screen. So whether that's computer, TV or phone, um, so try and limit that as best as they can. You're trying to also just encourage relative rest. So if they don't need to necessarily be in a dark room, but trying to just get them to, you know, make sure that they're actually pacing out their day. So if they're supposed to be working the next day, it might be worth, and they're pretty symptomatic that um, afternoon when you see them, it's probably worth having a chat to them and sort of saying, look, you know, it's probably worth taking tomorrow off um, and maybe having a plan for how you pace out the rest of your week. Because if you can actually get them so that they actually recover well and they're not triggering their symptoms off really early, you can often make a big change later on. So trying to, you know, get them to um, try and have a bit of downtime there. They can go for walks, but, you know, they shouldn't be really trying to ramp their heart rate up. So, you know, you're not doing um, the thousand steps or uh, really trying uh, hard on a big bike ride. They're just going for sort of like your uh, leisure style walk through the city type scenario. Um, they might need to wear a sunglasses or hat if they find that they're light sensitive. Um, it's just trying to reassure them a little bit that if they do get symptoms that it's normal in the early stages and that it should settle down yep okay and once things are settling down i guess well your role at the club i'm sure you would see um that athlete once they sort of move through that initial process from a physio standpoint but also you do at the concussion clinic at epworth um so when are they when are you starting to work with them and what's that look like at the start of that so generally after that sort of three or four day point um i would start to work with them at the club um often i wouldn't get them at that point if i was either at the concussion clinic or a private clinic because usually i haven't even uh really seen a doctor or sort of figured out that um there are actual symptoms that are sort of progressing on so if i was in a team perspective that's when i'd start to sort of look at their ocular activity, um, see where they're getting symptoms, see what sort of symptoms they're getting, whether it's dizziness, headache, um, nausea particularly, um, and also have a look at then um, what sort of tasks are actually triggering that. Like, is it that with if they're uh, completely fine with, say, uh, going for walks and maybe they're about to start trying a bike and that sort of thing, that's completely fine. But if they're, say, sitting in meetings or trying to do any sort of screen-based work that that's actually triggering them off, then you're taking sort of quite different pathways to trying to treat that. Um, whereas in a clinic scenario, you're probably not seeing them for maybe, say, three-ish weeks at the earliest. So generally, say you had... Um, you knew someone that was getting concussion symptoms, often I would try and let them settle down a little bit. You know, the benefit of elite sport is obviously that you're seeing them pretty early and getting a handle on things pretty quickly. But um, in a clinic, you want to try and give them the education, see whether it settles. Often they do settle pretty quickly. Um, and then at about the three-week mark, you're trying to introduce some exercises there if um, you find that it doesn't settle down. But I probably wouldn't introduce anything too early in a clinic sort of scenario because you're not monitoring them um, as often. Yeah, okay. So, all right, well, let's talk through the sort of club environment then for those who will be working with athletes week to week. And um, we will get to chatting through that sort of return to exercise and, and weights and things like that. But I guess first you mentioned there around ocular assessment or and, and rehab. What's What do you mean by that? Um, so initially the easiest way, and they, they have done it as a, a sideline um, assessment as well, but the easiest sort of most systematic way to go through an, a basic ocular assessment is to do something called the VOMS. Um, so I can also, uh, all that handout's actually provided as um, part of the masterclass as well. Um, so you're looking at trying to actually 
just get an idea of their initial symptom burden and then have a look at which parts of their ocular function do actually trigger some of those symptoms even further. So you're looking at things like smooth pursuits, so just visual tracking, um, and you want to sort of stretch them to their limits a little bit. So you need to make sure that you're sort of um, pushing them to the limits of their vision as well. Um, and then you're looking at circadic eye movement. So some people are completely fine uh, if their head's still in their eyes are moving and other people are completely the opposite where if they have to fix on a target. So similar to say, if you're walking down the street, looking at a street sign, your head's bopping up and down, but you can still see the street name. Um, some people really struggle with that element of it or looking at their phone while they're walking, for instance. Um, so it's a way of isolating which parts of their vision are the issue. Um, and you, there's a couple of tasks that you do. Most of the tasks you're doing a, a binocular vision, so double um, using both eyes. And there's one task, which is uh, accommodation, which only uses one eye. So you're testing essentially visual acuity on of one eye. And if that is an issue early, I tend to leave it. You, there's no exercise that you're going to be able to give them that will change that. Um, but if as their symptoms are reducing, that doesn't improve then, at, or if you find that their vision is just continuing to be a problem and that doesn't improve, then I would often refer them to particular optometrists to try and actually see whether sometimes they need a pair of temporary glasses. Sometimes um, they end up, you know, it might be that they had uh, a minor issue with their vision and just didn't notice till they had a concussion. Um, so sometimes, yeah, that's, when you're looking at monocular things, they're the sort of things that you need to refer off. All right. So you've worked through some of your VOMS assessment and there's a few sort of findings that you would then um, train up and prescribe with um, a few different types of exercises and look to improve that. What's an example that might be something that you see that would commonly sit outside the norm that you might be able to train and improve and that might guide what you're doing with their day-to-day -day exercises and things? Yeah. So um, there's a few things that are... Uh, like convergence, so the capacity for your eyes to actually come together as an object comes closer to you um, or diverge as it goes further away, that you can um, train up using either, uh, you can use, say, different objects at different sorts of uh, locations away from the person. So sometimes um, it actually makes them feel quite unwell or they start to have a headache. So you've got to use that as your guide as to how hard to push them. Because if you make them feel really, really sick and then they're sick for another two days, they're not going to want to do, well, A, they won't do your exercises and B, you're going to struggle to sort of keep them, uh, keep them trusting you in a way that means that they'll actually be responsive to what you're trying to get them to do. So you sort of want to nudge the symptoms, but you don't really want to push through it. Um, I think we've done one, I think we did one on the masterclass, which is a bit easier to show uh, where you actually use the convergence um, aspect of things. Um, an easy one to sort of describe would be, so some of the actual assessments you can then use as a treatment as well. So for instance, popping a um, just a small letter X on the wall, they focus on that and then they stand and just shake their head, just a really small uh, head movement side, but quick head movement side to side. They can do it to a metronome if they're struggling to get pace um, at about 180. You're trying to aim for about 180 to 200 uh, beats per minute, which is actually quite quick. Um, and they're just trying to do it really quickly. And, you know, ideally, particularly if they're uh, an athlete for a longer period of time. So looking at upwards of say 20, 30 seconds so that then you can be confident that, you know, shaking their head around essentially, which, you know, running does, uh, having to get ground balls um, and just generally jumping around. You want to be confident that that sort of thing isn't going to stir them up and, and that can be a way of sort of testing that out. Lovely. And talking about running and getting going, um, when, how do we know when we're a good way to a good place to start running? And I guess, how do we start just physical exercise um, in the early stages uh, from an athlete returning to concussion? Yeah, so um, it really depends on uh, the type, the athlete that you've got. A really significant post-concussion headache is not going to be that conducive to uh, exercise in general, exercises in general. So whether it's 
any sort of exercise really if they're um, pretty significantly flared up already by the time they see you uh, generally it's more trying to actually do some things to settle it down you're not trying to really provoke that further so that's probably one of the main ones that I wouldn't really push that much um, particularly if their headaches start occasionally they'll start to come down as you do some exercise um, but more often than not you're just going to set them off further and if they're coming in with say a, a 5 out of 10 type headache uh, you're not going to uh, win many friends by pushing that um, even further and sending them off uh, with more so of a migraine probably. Um, so I would generally start doing a really light bike session. So probably, especially if you don't actually get to observe them doing it, or if you're not seeing them, uh, you know, for another week or so, you want to really be careful with how you prescribe things. So you're better off doing less and have them take an extra week or two to get back than have them doing too much because you could potentially set them back for, a, you know, a half a week, a week or so. Um, so I'll prescribe them a really light bike. So it might even just be 20 minutes of just doing almost like a little flush ride. So just ticking the legs over essentially, preferably on a stationary bike, just because especially if they've got any visual issues, being outside, riding past things, having to actually cognitively um, think about, you know, crossing roads and not knocking into people and that sort of thing will actually add more of a, a load onto um a head that's already probably struggling with what it's trying to do in the first place. Um, so start off with a bit of a flash bike if they have no issues with that. But And if they're not really getting symptoms with that, you can really start to then the next session, you know, try and actually get them to get a bit of a sweat up on the bike. Um, I'd leave it two days just so then if they do flare up, you've got a bit of a buffer in between and you know what's stirring them up. Uh, then a couple of days after that, they could try potentially just like a, a pretty light um, sort of steady state type run, see how that goes. Um, that's how I would generally start them off. So you want to do a bit of biking first just to make sure, um, make sure that there's no real symptoms to start with. And then you can try the running, which just has a few different components to it. So it's got a few more components that can, can stir the head up a little bit. Okay. And do you want to make sure they're completely symptom free before we're starting either the bike or run? So no longer reporting headache, no longer obviously any dizziness or uh, visual disturbance and they can start or do you find a balance? So this is probably where things can differ a little bit. So the concussion protocol states that you should be completely symptom free, but to evidence in concussion actually suggests that your the actual exercise actually helps you become uh, less symptomatic and then hopefully symptom free so i just tend to work on making sure that the symptoms don't elevate like particularly when you're looking at so non-contact type types of training um, and particularly when you're looking at more cardiovascular type training like you're biking and you're running um, I think if you delay them till they're completely symptom free, they might be doing very little for five or six weeks, which is not good for anyone really, both, especially if um, a big part of, like they might not be elite athletes, but you know, if they're say um, distance cyclists and normally are used to doing 400, 500 Ks a week, and you've completely taken everything off them, their head's gonna struggle a little bit and not just from the concussion. Um, so I think you need to find a balance. So if they're tolerating, say, 20 minutes of uh, biking um, and they're not have, reporting any increase in their symptoms after that, or they're getting maybe, say, a 1 out of 10 increase and then it settles down within the hours after you finish with them and they're you know, completely fine uh, or their symptom level's pretty, sta um, pretty stable the next day, then I think that's perfectly normal if you're not that confident in managing it i would just say if they start to increase you should stop them at that point like it's a bit easier once you get a few more patients through that you've seen that and and you sort of can more easily predict how they're going to respond okay so you're de definitely listening to the, the symptoms and correct tracking that from but there. i don't if you wait till they're symptom free you, sometimes they'll never be a start like some people are never symptom free. 
And so you have to try and start them with something that's that's manageable. Um, and that might be two minute, like just really light two minute intervals on the bike. Like they'll probably, you have to sort of educate them that they may feel like they're not actually cardiovascularly doing anything, but it's more just to actually get their system going a little bit. Um, and before we move through, I guess, past that initial phases of running, uh, some athletes will always want to get back and, and do some uh, weight training and things like squats and uh, bench press and the like. Is there sort of guidance around doing this and a way to start this from a, a introductory session and moving forward from a selection of exercise and selection of intensity? Yeah, so I would generally do just a body weight session um, to start with. So for their first session back, um, you know, it can be things like just a, a body weight squat, some single leg squats, um, some single leg uh, RDLs. You just need to be careful. Just often I would just ask them after every exercise that they've done as to whether that set them off or not, because a lot of people won't offer you that. Um, or if you ask them, they'll tell you that they're a little bit you know, oh, that made me feel a little bit dizzy, but they probably wouldn't have told you that had you not asked them in the first place for some reason. <laughs> so it's just something to watch. Um, yeah, so I would start with a light body weight type session and then look at progressing through to, uh, say, maybe doing some more single leg or single arm work because you won't have to brace as much and that Valsalva manoeuvre can sometimes produce a bit of a headache. Um, so going then to maybe the next session being some uh, lighter weighted single arm and single leg work, and then you can progress them slowly back through to their normal uh, normal weights, double leg, double arm, however um, they normally do it. The main thing to watch with those sorts of movements in the gym would be uh, they may need to even start further back than that, maybe doing like a, a seated leg extension and a, uh, a curl purely because the rest of them won't be moving at the same time. Um, so sometimes the squatting chin-ups um, and uh, anything where they're actually push-ups, anything where they're moving up and down might actually trigger them off a little bit. All right, so you've sort of moved through some of your ocular assessment and you're addressing some of the um, findings that you might have there, um, which is a bit more... Uh, intricate and difficult to talk through, I guess, on, on a podcast setting. But then uh, moving through exercise um, progressions, you, we've ticked off that first run, feeling pretty good. Um, how do we go about introducing us back into that intensity component? Uh, are we happy just to drop them into some training or do you need to sort of grade things in a little bit more uh, carefully? And then um, obviously contact training as well is the next step around that. How does that fit? Yeah, so I would try and actually work on, you want to get some intensity into their running first uh, to make sure that they're actually tolerating their heart rate. So um, the autonomic nervous system can actually uh, trigger off some symptoms um, post-concussion. So you also want to, or can be affected rather post-concussion. So you actually want to make sure that uh, they're actually tolerating their heart rate being um, at a high level for various intervals as it would normally be through um, through a game or through training. Um, so before you tick them off to go back into even non-contact training or dr even any sort of drills, I would make sure that they're comfortable um, getting into some speed work and some um, change of direction work where they don't have to focus on a ball or another player being there. Then I would introduce, um, like especially if you've got the staff to be able to do it or if you can do it with the player, doing some ball skill work one-on-one. -on -one. So just making sure that they're comfortable. You know, you could even do it with a medicine ball where you sort of spin around um, and they have to pass the medicine ball back to you in, um, to either side. So just making sure that they're comfortable with the actual movement of that, um, doing a few drills with you one-on-one. -on -one. Then uh, provided they've ticked all of that off, you can try and get them into certain elements of some non-contact training um, and both them and the other players it's worth making sure that everyone's well aware that they are non-contact at this point um, to make sure that there's no accidental head knocks um, provided then they tick that off um, and in the AFL we would use then a cognogram to tick them off to return to some contact based training um, if you didn't have access to that 
it would mainly be so if they've already seen say a sports doctor or their gp you should actually refer them back to be ticked off for that um for contact training uh especially if they've come from there to begin with um but they need to be symptom free at that point so that's not where you can tolerate a, a headache post session or dizziness during or um or even uh if someone's coming off and saying that they're feeling a lot more fatigued than they normally will before they return to contact training they need to be symptom free so you sort of answered my next question there which is around where does the sort of doctor fit throughout this whole process obviously the initial uh, assessment and diagnosis of concussion and probably being a little bit of the gatekeeper throughout the process but if I was in a sort of sub-elite setting, the doctor really it's important to to see them before contact training, and for the most part, in between there, it's it can be driven by, you know, the the health professional. Um, does that sound about right? Yeah, correct. It's also um, a big thing at the moment, particularly with just the medico legal issues around concussion, is that we're not uh, technically equipped to be making those sorts of decisions. Um, and so whilst we can definitely guide the rehab and help guide when they do return to those sorts of things, you're putting yourself at a bit of a risk if you're the one that's, you know, ticking them off and saying they're definitely fine to go back to um, contact training, particularly if you're not experienced in, in the area itself as well. So you want to also make sure that you're covering your bases too and doing what's best for the player or the patient. So it leads into the next point around, uh, I think earlier you mentioned around, you know, maybe the 10% that that don't sort of fit that sort of box that you end up referring. Like when is it, when are some really clear signs that you need to refer on to someone with a greater scope in concussion uh, and not try to take on too much yourself and involve that more multidisciplinary team? Yeah, so I think the a big thing is the lack of progress. Um, so if you've been seeing them, even say, you know, three or four times and they're still reasonably sort of early, like within the first three to six weeks, but they haven't really progressed at all or they've got really severe symptoms in a lot of different categories, um, then I think you want to refer them on because they're likely to need some multidisciplinary management. They're also likely to either not be at school or not be at work and particularly if you've got your, you know, even say your 40 minute slot at a, a clinic, um, which is probably being a bit generous sometimes, um, they, you'll often have too much to do to be able to fit it into that sort of time slot. Um, and even like we have hour long appointments and, you know, they might see me, they might see a psych and they might see an OT, all of us are doing different things. And yet we've still managed to fill up three hours worth of time. Um, so I think if they've got really severe symptoms, uh, if you're not progressing in the first couple of sessions um, and their symptom profile is not changing at all, I'd refer them in. Uh, if they've got a lot of anxiety around their symptoms, because I just don't think that uh, as a physio, you know, in a standalone clinic, it's hard to be equipped to manage that, particularly if concussion's not something that you do a lot of as well. Um, but often they come with pre-existing mental health issues, particularly the ones that do tend to have, say, symptoms that, you know, might drag on for a year or two as well, um, I would definitely refer those ones on because even I don't feel equipped to manage those on my own. Like there's some that I've seen at the clinic that have been referred at a private practice um, when I was doing that that have been referred in and I've referred them into the clinic because I don't feel like I can manage um, all their symptoms on my own. Um, and probably younger patients as well, particularly younger patients with concussions that are say, you know, greater than six weeks that aren't settling and they're not at school. You just want to be a bit more careful about that and maybe having them also see the consultant at the start, um, having another doctor involved is a good way to help manage that. Good. And, And to be clear, I guess, by referring on there where, you know, the doctor's clearly involved at the start and the whole process, but referring on is meaning to sort of a concussion clinic or an, an, a practice that really specialises in concussion um, and not just like referring on to a doctor. Obviously, the doctor's involved right from the get-go. Yeah, yeah correct. Yeah. Uh, 
Okay. Uh, now, so we've ticked off. Um, so being that that final uh, Cogsport testing, uh, what's that sort of? Give us a general overview. I know it's reasonably uh, thorough and detailed, but a general overview of like what that tests, and then um, obviously from there that giving us clearance to return to contact training and return to play. Yeah. So it looks at a couple of different things, um, mainly around their cognition. So as well as their physical function, which you can generally test uh, in the way of, can they you know, tick all the boxes in the way of um, their visual testing, their running capacity, um, their hand-eye coordination with the ball, and you know, you're not triggering their symptoms there. They've also got the cognitive element, and unless both are settling down, they still can't go back to returning to play. So um, the Cognigram or the Cogsport will test out things like memory. So they bring up a whole series of cards um, and then you have to figure out which ones in that list have come up again. Um, so a, a lot of them are, are memory um, are memory focused and uh, often they have to do sort of practice tests. So sometimes that is one of the flaws of the test that um, can be an issue because they've seen a series of cards and they can't remember whether they're seeing the first series of cards or the next, the actual test series of cards. So, um, yeah, it's worth factoring that in. Um, so yeah, the, the cognogram is the final tick off and, and yes, it has, you know, it can have its issues because of those things, but I think it's important to tick off a, a cognitive element. Um, things to note is if they're not back at school or work, um, or they're you know really struggling to say sit down in a meeting or or read the paper or something in the morning they're not ready to do that test because they're still not going to be ready to return to contact regardless of how far they're going physically yep so you're clearly listening listening to both you know their symptoms and your ability to sort of grade them up from an exercise a graduated progression through those exercise stages and making sure they're they're symptom free and then when you're putting all those pieces together i guess like you would with an, a normal another injury and then you're just getting that final tick off um from there and to grade them back in in from Correct. there into contact yeah. yep all right so once the player's back to return to play i guess first and foremost um and it's probably similar to throughout the rehab process what are the key things that you're one monitoring and two um once they have returned is there sort of is there prevention strategies that you're putting in place? And I guess from there, basic stuff that I could reference to are things along the lines of um, we hear about the mouth guards, the helmets, as well as neck strengthening and, and those sort of things. Can you talk to those aspects? Yeah, so I think um, once they've returned to play, I will generally try and see someone, say, at the clinic, uh, depending on how long they've had symptoms for, often I'll try and see them once. If they've had like a, a year-long sort of rehab type period and then they've only gone back to one game i'll usually try and then see them maybe after another three or four games just to make sure that things are staying settled and and also that they're not getting symptoms that they might not be telling other people particularly if they're young and in representative squads and and sort of pushing for say a national selection or something that's often something that they may not disclose to to other people so um, I think it's worth uh, with the prolonged one seeing them for that little bit longer um, and just making sure that there's nothing sort of lingering around. So main things are going to still be your headache, dizziness, and you want to try and really nail down what dizziness is for them. So with some people, it's if it's vertigo, you need a test for BPPV um, because some people will describe vertigo and not have it, and, and that's fine. You just need to sort of nail down what how they're describing it. But if they have BPPV, it's also a really quick way to settle some symptoms down pretty quickly as well. And if you miss it, they might just keep um, keep getting some pretty nasty symptoms when they first get up and go to, back to bed and unnecessarily. Um, but so yeah, you wanna nail down how they describe their dizziness. So is it vertigo? Is it like just a lightheadedness? Um, is it just that they feel a bit disoriented when they move their head quickly? Um, so yeah, you've got to sort of figure out how they describe that. Um, nausea is another one. So particularly the ones that get nausea with uh, exercise, it's not really making them feel that comfortable. So you want to try and make use that as a bit of a baseline. 
uh, as to how they're feeling. Um, but if they get any of that um, as they're returning to play, then they're just not ready. Um, and the other big thing that often lingers on, and this isn't necessarily for athletes, this is um, just in general, is that people find that everything's going pretty well, but they're just fatigued all the time. So, you know, and even a simple blood test could be worth doing just to see whether everything else is uh, sort of tracking along pretty well. But um, until that really settles down, often I wouldn't sort of push through that too much, but it's something to monitor for return to play. Yep. Nice. And that's, uh, and then the prevention side of things, like once they have returned, uh, both, I guess, uh, targeted prevention for an athlete, um, but also uh, you've got the global aspects that could be applied to you know the whole group from a strengthening point of view. Is there merit in doing those sort of things? Yeah, so um, it's still reasonably there's not too much evidence yet around neck strengthening for concussion prevention. However, amongst experts in the field, um, anecdotally they do agree that it it is a factor that um, should impact your likelihood to actually have another concussion. Um, and I think there's so much of concussion that isn't because it's such a, a population that has such a varied symptom burden, you're not going to find one particular thing that either prevents it or that improves it for the whole population. Um, so I think that particularly for people that have had a number of concussions, we should be doing some neck strengthening with them to make well, to just to make sure that a they're preventing a concussion from occurring again but also it takes a lot less force to actually cause a whiplash incident compared to a concussive episode and so often you'll get whiplash with a concussion so if their neck function is uh inhibited you want to actually address that as well um it's not everyone's favorite thing to do particularly if you start bringing out helmets and whatnot people don't often like the look of them but um trying to actually target some areas like doing some banded work for neck extensors um you need to start especially with contact athletes we probably don't use enough force um in that if they're going out and you know being elbowed in the head and um having their head contact the ground whilst we don't need to use uh, enough force to actually cause an injury you, you do need to um, actually stress the area a little bit. So using things like, say, lighter power bands and, and therabands and actually even doing some self-resisted uh, or some partner-resisted type work isn't a bad idea. I think they actually need um, some load through their neck, you know, especially if you're looking at things like rugby or um, or someone that has to actually, you know, even things like driving, say, a a race car or something you have to actually resist a lot of force coming in the other direction and it's um it is something you touched on the master class around neck function and how important that is because obviously um it usually comes with a concussion and you usually need to address that neck dysfunction if it is there which i, I guess leads into i guess a, a final question and we, we talked to it in that in the master class on manual therapy or general physio skills to try to address that and that plays a role yeah, correct. Um, especially if they're quite early on, like, you know, they, you're allowed to use, often people will sort of want to go sort of one way or the other, but you need to combine both of them. So if they're getting a really stiff and sore neck, definitely do some manual therapy on that and then combine it with the exercises, whether they're getting quite stiff and sore because their visual system's impacted and so they tend to clench to try and sort of stabilise things a little bit. Um, you know, yes, you've got the exercises to address it, but doing five or 10 minutes of some manual therapy to give them some short-term symptom relief might actually then help you progress a little bit further because you're not having to push through those symptoms um, when they're trying to do the exercises at home. Uh, so yes, I think there's a, a big role to play with that. It can also mean that particularly for more whiplashy type patients, um, that might have some more cervicogenic sort of dizziness. So um, dizziness that isn't necessarily caused by the visual system or the vestibular system. Um, it's more caused by uh, certain structures in their neck. You might actually address that. Uh, it's hard to isolate, obviously, which part is more the vestibular system or the visual system or um, the cervical system, but it will all contribute to them feeling a lot better. Perfect. All right, Laura, we'll... 
That's uh, the line of questioning I wanted to take us through to give a bit of a, some scope. Is there anything that we sort of have missed there or haven't talked to that you think is an important point to bring up? Yeah, so you mentioned um, mouth guards and headgear uh, before, and I think that with both of those, so the mouth guards um, that they've got sort of out now, whilst they haven't been shown to prevent concussions, I think some of the ones that have sort of chips in them to help figure out where the forces are coming from will be interesting once we get enough data to actually sort of recognise whether it's rotational force or just more linear acceleration type forces that actually more contribute to the instances where people do get an actual concussive episode from that head knock. Because there are multiple, like some of the data we're getting is like players having say 30 odd head knocks a game, like, and some of them are very light ones, but um, not all of those obviously end in concussive episodes and it's trying to differentiate um, which ones do. And so that might be able to uh, sort of help with that once there's a big data pool around that. But I don't think that the mouth guards that sort of put the pallet in a particular position at the moment have been shown to help with um, preventing a concussion. Um, same with the headgear. Um, they're finding that helmets particularly, look, if you've got someone that's been concussed a few times, sometimes it's parents as well that, you know, they feel like they the look of, um, say, someone being in a helmet shows that they're, they're trying to prevent the concussion from happening and that's fine. But as long as I suppose you have the conversation around that there's no evidence for it, if everyone's comfortable with that and um, they'd prefer to have one, that's fine too. But it's just, it's not shown to prevent a further concussion. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, I think that's been a really nice snapshot. Obviously, keyword there, it's a snapshot. There's concussions, obviously a huge topic and such a, a really has a big place uh, in sports medicine at the moment and obviously a lot more to, to come out over the many years moving forward um, but it's great to sort of chat to you and around I guess the physio's role or um, the health pre- healthcare provider's role in managing some of those the processes through uh, and obviously working how, how we work within a allied health team to sort of or medical team to get that athlete back to to full function so uh, appreciate you coming on board and and passing on some of your knowledge yeah no worries and yeah like you said i think everyone needs to sort of realize that it's a really rehabable injury and we have a big role to play in that yep and uh and so you mentioned your clinic you're at epworth uh sports medicine sorry epworth concussion clinic at hawthorne so to uh oh we can send you my email details and you can either email me on that if you need anything or um it would be a referral from the gp to one of the consultants if they need the multidisciplinary team i'm sure that's helpful for people out there especially in melbourne who uh you know get stuck and needing to know where you can send but i'm sure for everyone else out there you know if you can if you do get stuck look for a concussion clinic or someone who specializes in concussion to assist in that process when needed so um that's enough for me laura but uh thanks again for coming on board and uh we look forward to chatting to you soon sounds good thanks thanks for having me thanks everybody for listening and as mentioned at the start of the podcast laura has a masterclass session on concussion that is available on our website now you have seven day free trial available for all so get on there and have a look at some of the things she was talking about today you can see it in real time and really take away some of those practical insights Thanks for listening and we'll see you for episode 23.